You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. This is a call to hospitality. This is a call to make room in our lives for the other. It's easy to make room in these lives for their babies. One, because they're small. They don't take up a lot of room. Um, second, because they're so cute and we want to like squeeze them. Um, and so this is, this is a, a reminder, an acknowledgement that we're all connected, right? God has given us each other. And in this new covenant, in this new kingdom, um, in this other way of Jesus that removes barriers between us and God, it means that you and I as individual members of this body of Christ have a responsibility to this family, right? To this body, to contribute to its health, to contribute to the unity of the body and work with the other parts of the body. All of us working together toward the same purpose as we join God in his mission to fix what is broken in this world. And so we invite these families to commit their kids to these shared values, to God and to you, and then we ask you in return to make space in your life to be an example, a comfort, a trusted family, a voice calling us back when the child goes astray. This is a call to hospitality, right? It's a family love beyond what our culture defines as family. Because in creation, God demonstrates hospitality to us by making room for creation. The Jewish tradition understands that before creation, before God spoke and created anything, God filled up everything. There was nothing but God. God filled up all the space that there was. There was nothing that there wasn't God. So in order to make anything else that wasn't God, God had to pull back some of himself to create something that wasn't him. And he created us, right? He created the whole world. He creates from love. He creates from family because we understand that God is three in one, right? He's, he has connection within himself. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. He is a relationship of self-giving love within his own person. So when we see new life, when we see babies, we are stirred, right? Something within us is reminded that all of life is powerful and good and worth any effort, worth any failures, worth any pain that we might endure. It's all connected and there is hope. And God works this same model like he does in creation, making room when he chooses a people Israel, right? He, he makes room in his life to have um, a group of people that he would call his own. God makes room in his life and they make room in their life for him, although they failed miserably at it sometimes, right? It's this marriage. What it looks like is a marriage covenant. Each party agrees to the terms and those terms were the 10 commandments. It's as if God is saying, do you? I do right? Like the Ten Commandments are what it's going to take to make this life together work, right? God gives them the law, and it's like a covenant relationship of marriage, and they enter into life together, but Israel fails over and over again. And the language when they fail is that of an unfaithful spouse, right? They cheated on their God with other gods, or um, they turned to their own selfishness and tried to become their own little gods, and so we're connected, right? That, that this, this God, this idea of God that is connected within himself um, and this idea that God invites us into his life, it reminds us that we're connected. But we don't act like it sometimes, right? We don't admit it or we don't live as if we are connected because we tend towards selfishness. We tend toward, to isolate ourselves. We try to uh, be independent and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We try to prove something on our own. 
But when you watch these babies, when you, when you, when you think about this idea of baby dedication, you, you felt something, right? When you see those faces, those cute faces, you, you feel something. You're reminded that we are connected. It does something within you. Same thing with bad news, right? When you hear about something bad, when you hear about death or disease or orphans, like you feel something because you're connected. Because babies are good news that reminds us that we're moving together into something better. There's hope. This new life reminds us that there's hope. And the bad news makes us feel that it shouldn't be this way. There must be some better way. It's that longing for the kingdom, and it's been that way since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Right? We're longing to be connected the way we were when we were created. We were connected to God, and we were connected to one another. And what we find in creation and throughout Scripture is how God is community within himself. Right? The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, is a family of self-giving love and support. It's how God created us in his image, right? to be connected to him and to each other. It's how God allowed Adam to realize his need for community, revealing the truth that it's not good for man to be alone. It's when the two become one, right? And it says that they're naked and unashamed, this idea that we're fully known and yet loved. We're unashamed. And that's the longing that we seek. That's the root desire of all that we do, everything that we strive for, whether it's money or companionship or pleasure. It's a means of being fully known and unashamed, able to be loved and to love at the same time. And we already have that, you guys. Like, like God knows us and loves us. So when we see the first two humans and the two become one, it's a picture of what God is and what God is up to in the world. He's making things one again. The Hebrew word for one is a little different than our word for one. It has this connotation of, of, of many parts becoming one. So God is, God is many parts, but he is one. And when the two become one, it's the same word. It's the word akkad. And I use this word a lot. I'm sorry if you guys are getting sick of it. Um, but I love this word. It's so awesome. Um, it's, it's, it's about unity. It's about many parts coming together to form one. So there's more depth to this word. Like it, it, it carries more weight when we talk about God is one. And that's the word used in the Shema um, when Scripture gives us this prayer that the Israelites prayed uh, multiple times a day when it, it starts off, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he is Father, He is Son, He is Spirit, but He is completely one, He is completely whole, He is completely perfect. And when there is incompleteness and when, there is, when things aren't whole, when things are broken into pieces, God wants to make it whole. God wants to put the pieces back together to fix what's broken. Right? That's the hope. That's this ancient desire, this feeling that things are broken but can be fixed. This root longing for connection is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled fully because God is good and God is holy. So God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, right? Like populate the earth. He told Noah when he got off the ark, be fruitful and multiply, cover the whole earth. The same language is used with Abraham and his descendants, that they were going to multiply. It's the idea was to increase in number and spread across the whole earth. And family was the vehicle for creating more and more people. It was the only way to continue the bloodline of Abraham. God's people were specifically physical descendants of Abraham. 
So God's promise to make them as numerous as the stars and to grow them into a substantial population that would be called God's people, that would happen through the physical family line of Abraham. So the command to be fruitful and multiply came before Abraham. It was given to Adam and it was given to Noah. And now for Abraham, it means something more because it's his family line that are God's people. Right? It's his family line that that covenant was made with. And it was made so that God would bless them so that they could bless the whole world. Now I think, I'm not sure, but I think we've accomplished that mission to spread out and populate the whole earth. Um, we've increased the population um, slowly but surely throughout history. Um, when, when God gave this command to Abraham, there was probably under 100 million people um, on the planet. And the growth rate was slow and steady in the first First century estimates, when Jesus was here, it was probably between 130 million and 400 million. It's a big range because we don't know. Um, now, I say we think we accomplished this mission because of the last 200 years. We've done a really good job, <laughs> right? It took humanity until about 1800 to reach 1 billion in population. Now, with the advances of technology and medicine and science, population has been able to increase in, at unprecedented rates. So between 1900 and 2000, the increase in population was three times greater than during the entire previous human history, right? So, so when we reach um, 1.5 billion in 1900, we reach 6.1 billion by 1999. Like um, just 100 years, we, we increased times six. So from, from 1800, when we reached 1 billion, we have multiplied that times seven today because we reached 6 billion in 99, like I said, and we passed 7 billion last year. <laughs> so these are staggering numbers. So can I just say, congratulations, you did it. Like, like we have accomplished this um, first commission of God to be fruitful and multiply. So uh, and we just dedicated two more today. And, and we have news of another birth. Lynn um, had her baby today. Lynn, uh, yeah. So, in the old covenant, that was that specific family, right? The de- it was dependent on, a, on physical descendants. And we can see how family was important. Like that bloodline was important to continue this people. The family line of Abraham was God's chosen people through whom he would bless the whole world. So in order to continue that family line, you had to be physically born into that family. So it would seem that family is one of the ways in which God is putting things back together. God is bringing more akadness into this world, right? He's, it's, it's fixing what is broken in this world. Um, so you think about family in the Bible, um, you would think that that's like God's plan is family. Like that's, that's good. But if you look at families in the Bible, you might give up on that idea because they fail miserably at doing family right. Like every time... They're very like efficient at failing, at messing everything up. It started with Adam and Eve, which didn't go too well with their kids because one of them killed the other one. And then everything gets worse all the time in Genesis to the point of um, Noah, who's the best the earth had to offer, right? And so he chooses Noah, he puts him on the ark. Noah gets off the boat, he gets drunk, and one of his sons witnesses his nakedness. And so Noah curses his son and his family like forever. Um, not the best family situation. Abraham and Sarah even, like, like they invite another woman into this marriage, which was a weird situation. Um, uh, there, there's um, Lot, um, Abraham's cousin Lot, and his daughters. 
I can't even talk about that here. Um, there's this whole idea of concubines throughout the scripture that like people talk about concubines as if it's perfectly normal. Um, there's Jacob who married the wrong girl. He's like, I thought I was marrying this girl, but I got this girl, so I had to work another seven years so they could marry this girl. There's um, Dinah who dates this guy from another tribe, and so her brother um, kills the whole tribe. Um, there's Tamar and a situation with her father-in-law, Judah. Um, there's Eli who's a priest, and his sons are very well known for bad behavior, which typical preacher's kids, right? Um, there's David, who was the second king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, but he had multiple wives and crazy kids. And then David takes another man's wife and he murders the husband. And then there's Hosea, a prophet whose life was a parable, a picture of what God's relationship was with uh, Israel. And, and God tells Hosea, go and marry a prostitute. And he does. And his kids are named No Compassion and Not My People. Like, let me introduce you to my kids. This one's named No Compassion. Say hi, no compassion. I say hi, not my people. Um, and they loved raisin cakes. I don't know why that was in there. Um, Jesus' Jesus's parents lost him. You guys remember? Like he was in the temple and it was the classic like, I thought you had him. No, I thought he was with you. Like what's going on? Like I did this. Like I left my kids at church because I thought Robin had him and she thought, you know. Um, and they were downstairs playing and they were fine. They didn't even know we left. Um, so, but, I, but I'm sure that like some of you share some of these experiences. Um, but and, and I'm pretty sure like none of us came from the perfect family and none of us are doing family very well, like perfectly. Um, then why family, right? Like why even set it up this way, God, right? Like why depend on a vehicle with no brakes and no safety systems that's con constantly running off the road? It overheats, it endangers like the lives of the people in the vehicle and outside the vehicle. Like we look at these biblical examples and it's like a complete mess, but God is invested in family, right? Like he created this and this is the vehicle. Because family, it's a practice, it's a picture, it's a tool, it's a sacred creation for hospitality, for mission, for unity. Because that's how God operates, right? He himself is family. He himself operates best in community. Without family, God is not a cad, right? Family is this practice of hospitality. Like marriage, a new baby or a church requires us to make room in our life for the other, to orient our lives in such a way that we pull back our selfish tendencies, making room and welcoming and even moving toward the other with an openness to sharing life together, lived for the benefit of the other. But it's a practice, right? Like none of us have gone pro at this idea of family. Like we're all practicing it, whether it's with our church family or the people that live in our house. Um, the people that we love the most tend to get the worst of us, right? Like, like we all know that um, the parts that we hide from the rest of the world come out at home, right? Like you spend the whole day being pleasant to other people only to get home and like unleash the stress of that day on the ones you supposedly love the most. Like the parts that we hide from the rest of the world like, like are all put on display at home. The morning breath, the stinky feet, the snoring, the bad attitude. And I'm just talking about Robin. Um, <laughs> but I'm sorry. <laughs> That's me. No, that's Olivia. We'll talk about it. Um, but we're pleasant all day, and then we, we come home with a bad attitude, right? Like, I don't... It's messy, right? Like, like family, like, like, none of us got it right, and I don't know if we're ever going to, but God is invested in this idea. Before the new covenant, this old covenant, it was the vehicle to populate the earth, the, the, the vehicle to continue Abraham's bloodline as God's people. It was always to cure loneliness. Like, it's not good for man to be alone. 
is to teach us about hospitality and about mission and about Akkad, is to teach us about God himself. But what we see in this new covenant, in this new kingdom of heaven breaking into earth through Jesus, what we see Jesus doing is not dependent on physical descendants and bloodlines, but through faith and adoption, right? Growing this family to include all of humanity. It's beyond direct descendants and bloodlines of Abraham. Now, all are invited. All are adopted. All can become family. So Jesus redefines family. He, he, he expands family in one sentence in Luke chapter 8, 19 through 21, we'll look at. It says, Then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not meet him because of the crowd. He was told, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. So he redefines history. Like he, he redefines family, opens it up drastically um, compared to just Abraham's descendants to those who hear and do the word of God. And so some context. Let's go back and look at Jesus' life and family, both heavenly and earthly. So we see he's born to parents who are descendants of Abraham. So he is a descendant of Abraham. And at Jesus' baptism, the Trinity is revealed. Like all are present. Like he's there getting baptized. The Holy Spirit is de- descending on him like a dove, and you hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my son whom I love. And then he enters into the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil. And now Jesus successfully resists the temptations. He leaves the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. He's ready to begin his mission, right? And so he's teaching in synagogues along the way. He's on his way home. He's, He's making his way back to his family. So he's teaching in synagogues, and everybody's impressed. And he, and he heads to his hometown, presumably because he knows he'll need family to complete this mission, right? He can't function without that family. And because he knows what's best, it's, it's who he is as God. He passes John along the way home, and he picks up some, some followers along the way, some, some people that joined him, that followed Jesus. He goes to a wedding on the way home outside of, of his hometown, and he performs his first miracle. And he makes it home just in time to read in the synagogue. Now, this is a tradition that, people, that you know, men from the town would read uh, a section uh, from Scripture. And so, you know, this is a big time. Like, he's, he's making his mama proud, right? It's his hometown. He's reading at church. Like, he's, he's, he's doing the sermon that day. He's like, oh, my boy, Jesus is reading from the... And, um, and so, so he turns, so he, he reads from the scroll. And he, okay, so you've got to imagine the scene. Like, mother and brothers present. Um, lifelong friends present, like all of the people he's known his whole life, extended family and all, everybody's there. Jesus um, turns um, to the book of Isaiah and he reads a text about a Messiah who would be sent by God to proclaim freedom to the captive and he would set the oppressed free. He would bring good news to the poor and sight to the blind. Now this is good news to the hearers and they would be familiar with this text because they needed that because it had been 400 years since God had spoken and they were waiting for this Messiah. They were waiting for this day when that Messiah would show up, and it had been these 400 years of silence, and so reading this text was vital to their hope and to their strength and to carrying on. This is where everything turns ugly, because Jesus reads that text, rolls it up, sets it down, sits down, and then he says, by the way, that's about me, and it's not just for the descendants of Abraham. It's for everyone. Like he drops this truth bomb and like everybody starts freaking out. They grab him and they take him up to the side of a mountain to throw him off a cliff. And I'm hoping that's not how this sermon ends up today. 
<laughs> right? Like, like, like dark, dark twist in the story there. Like he's like, oh, I'm so proud of you, Jesus, reading in the synagogue to we're going to throw you off a cliff. And uh, it was, I love how it just, the text just says, but Jesus escaped without them like grabbing a hold of him. Like he just escaped. I'm assuming like a ninja, right? Like, like all of a sudden he's gone. And like my mobility isn't what it used to be. So I'm hoping like, like you guys would be able to catch me if you wanted to throw me off the cliff. Like Jesus got away like a ninja. Um, but I want to look at what we don't see on the first read of that. Like what we don't see, um, because sometimes it's not our enemies attacking us that hurts the most. Sometimes it's not having friends and family on your side. Like he felt alone. He felt abandoned by his family. Like, like notice what's not happening. Mary's not clinging to her son. Please don't throw him off a cliff. Like give him another chance. We don't see his brothers fighting for him, standing up for him, saying, hey, guys, listen, he, he might just have something to say that's true. And that hurts when those closest to you remain silent, when you need them, when you think that they would be there for you and they're not. So Jesus leaves his hometown, and he doesn't go off with an, okay, fine, I'll do this without family. And he doesn't, and he doesn't give up on the mission to save his own family, like, like to, to be welcomed back into his family. Right? Like he turns to those new friends that he picked up along the way. Now they're from Capernaum, and so they head to their hometown so they could make new friends and create new family. Like So some time passes, and Jesus has this crowd following him now. He's created this new family. He's called people to follow him. Um, he's called those closest to him family, disciples. And so he's teaching, he's healing, he's He's performing these amazing things. Like even the religious leaders are starting to worry. Like he's getting a big following. And then in Mark 3, 20 through 21, it says um, that he went home and the crowd was so large that they weren't even able to eat. So there's this huge crowd there. And this is where we pick up. But it says that his family heard this. They set out to restrain him because they said he is out of his mind. So he's, so, so he's left his home, right? Like not a good good thing. He's come back and his mother and brothers want to see him. Not to say welcome home, not to uh, welcome him back, but because they think he's lost his mind and they need to restrain him. But he replies, my mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. One sentence, Jesus redefines family and then he gets on a boat and he leaves. Right? So his family are those that hear and do the word of God. It's the ones that are joined with God on mission. Now, this can include family as we think about it, right? The people that live in our house, but it can also exclude family as we think about it. It could, it could include the furthest thing we can think of um, as being family, right? Like those the world would say are our enemies, if they hear and do the word of God, that's family. Those from America or not, those from the south or from the north, those on the left or on the right, if they hear and they do the word of God, that's family, right? Like Florida Gator fans, Florida State fans, <laughs> like, like if they hear and do the word of God, that's family. Like, like Alabama, Auburn, maybe even those outside the SEC, Ohio State, like God's grace is more than I can imagine sometimes, you know? 
I mean, <laughs> I mean, maybe they like maybe they like rap music. Maybe they like the Christian station. Maybe they like both types of music, country and western. If they hear and they do the will of God, that's family. But now later in the story, we see that Jesus' mother and brothers do join in on what God is doing, and they do hear and do the will of God, and so they become a part of that family. Like, like this is making disciples. This is inviting people to follow you as you follow God. This is new. This opens up the definition of family from an understanding of descendants to adoption and faith. That command to be fruitful and multiply and spread out over the whole earth now sounds like this. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you to the end of the age. Like, invite them into the family. They start hearing, they start doing the will of God. That's expanding this family. That's populating the whole earth. That's going into all the nations. So we go from descendants to disciples. We go from bloodline to adoption. We go from birthright to open invitation. From the first commission to be fruitful and multiply and spread out over the face of the earth to the great commission to go into all the nations and make disciples. Right? We invite everyone to join in this family. So whether we're talking about family, as, as we think about, like people who live at your house, they're related to you by blood, or people who hear and do the will of God, this family is a disciple making factory, right? Like, like we are expanding this family by making disciples. And the fruit that's produced is an increasing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And the multiplication is disciples that are making disciples and the spreading out across the face of the earth is all nations. So we go from descendants of Abraham to disciples of Jesus. And Paul's language, it returns to this idea of family with this understanding that imitation of our spiritual parents is discipleship. Because for Jesus and his largely Jewish audience, the rabbi-disciple relationship would have been clear. They knew what that was. So Jesus taught in terms of information and imitation because a rabbi invited disciples to follow him and imitate his life, to become like him. So the rabbi model was this partnership, and it was, and then it was ideal for that Jewish audience. But at Pentecost, at the birth of the church, Jesus' ascension and the arrival of the Holy Spirit in a new way, the expansion of the gospel and the kingdom to, to different audiences outside of the Jewish culture, from Judea to Samaria and into uncharted territories with different cultures, different traditions, different languages, different stories, so that what we find is that the term disciple disappears after the book of Acts. And then we see Paul reaching Gentiles and expanding this audience with less familiarity with the Jewish culture. They didn't know rabbis and disciples. So Paul needs new language to share with them what this picture, what this model of disciple-making looks like. So Paul observes the culture, and he lands on this relationship. See, in households at the time, there would be guardians or live-in tutors. Um, the Greek word is pedagogos. It's like a trainer. It's a sort of live-in nanny that would train children in reading and writing and math and logic. But when the child was old enough, the boys joined dad and the girls joined mom to learn and become more like them, like a life-to-life uh, learning model. 
And so while the rabbi disciple model is a life that models and produces a disciple that would look and act and live like their rabbi, like their master, like their teacher, or in Jesus' case, Lord, the culture that Paul found himself in used this family language. And Paul adopted it to show how Jesus navigated these relationships, how he led by example and allowed his disciples to do the work and to learn through imitation and then innovate on their own. Or our language might be a mentor relationship or an apprentice relationship. So an example of this is Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I'm not writing to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you have 10,000 instructors. That's the term pedagogos, right? They teach you information. You have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you can't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. So Paul says you have a lot of instructors, right? People that can give you plenty of information about Jesus. But what you need is someone to imitate, someone to become like, a family to join, a rabbi to imitate, a parent to look like. So Jesus says, go and make disciples. And then he calls his disciples his friends. He calls his disciples his family. He lived this way, and he told us to live this way. Like He was the incarnation of God. He was the word made flesh, and he lived a life that put flesh on God's words. And then he tells us to do the same. So as we go from an old covenant, descendants of Abraham, to a new covenant, disciples of Jesus, from systems of law to systems of love, because of the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, this family expands and is open to all. It's beyond the limits of being born into the house of Israel. Now all are invited to join the family that we call the church. Right? The, the, the more the church puts on display the oneness that God is as we become one, the more his mission is accomplished, the more his glory is put on display. And so the first glimpse of this new reality, this new family, this new shared life on the day of Pentecost when the church began, it looks like this. Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possession and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. Every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. So there was this, this shared life. Like what's mine is not just mine, it's yours. Like they held all things in common. And the reason they could share like this and not hold tight to their personal freedoms and their personal possessions is because that is how the Father is. And that is how they understood Jesus to be. In Luke 15, we know the story of the prodigal son. Like Jesus tells the story of this younger son who essentially says to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. Well, the dad gives him his inheritance. He goes out, he squanders it all, and he ends up in the middle of this famine with no food and no work and nothing. And so in order to survive, he goes home, not to become a part of the family again, but just to work for food, to survive. But this father, he has other things in mind. He runs out to greet him on the road, and he embraces him 
welcoming him back into the family, right? He throws a party to celebrate. Now the older brother gets all jealous, right? Like, like, dad, I've been here the whole time. Where's my party? How come we're not celebrating me? And this is what he, this is what the father says to the older son. It's like, you are part of this family. Everything I have is yours, right? God gives us everything. Like he opens up his life to us, welcoming us into his family. God is reckless with his love and blessing, giving all to us. The early church, they understood this, right? They understood this, this all I have is yours, God, right? And so they shared everything in common. My possessions are no longer mine because I gave them to God and therefore they belong to you, right? These families are your family. These babies that we dedicated today, those are your babies. Not that you can take them home, (laughs) but they're a gift that we all share in the responsibility of because God is giving us blessings, not so we can store them up for ourselves, but so that we can bless the whole world. But that's hard to do in a culture that values, even idolizes personal property, personal rights, personal space, individualism, pride, self, which is why Jesus calls us out, out of one empire and into his kingdom, out of a kingdom of the world and into his kingdom that's not of this world. This new kingdom, it doesn't fight like the world fights. It doesn't divide like the world divides doesn't grasp at possessions or rights or recognition or safety and security. This new kingdom is radically different from any nation or empire or kingdom or ideology of this world. And we're called to love the nations as God loves them, but we've been called out of them and into his. This unity, this new family Um, that is put on display by the early church, this deep connection to one another is centered around Jesus, right? It's not just unity for the sake of unity, right? This unified people stems back to this idea that God is one, to that word akkad. His people should be one as well, right? We're not just unified because we have a common interest or common nationality or common political identity. We're united because we submit to Jesus as Lord, and therefore submit to one another as the one true body of Christ for his sake, for his kingdom, for his mission, for the sake of the whole world. So Paul calls us into this deeper unity. Ephesians 2 talks about how Christ created unity when he removed the barriers separating descendants of Abraham from everyone else. Or in Ephesians 4, when Paul urges us to walk worthy of that call, That sacrifice that Christ made to make us one, it's going to require humility and patience, and we have to be diligent about the unity of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, talk about how there is diversity yet unity within the body. Peter urges us to have the same mind and be tenderhearted with one another. Philippians 2, Paul asks us to make his joy complete by working toward unity. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says to aim for restoration where there is division because unity is vital. 
Colossians 3, Paul tells us to love, which is the bond of unity. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul pleads in Jesus' name for them to agree, to be united, for there to be no divisions. Jesus, in Matthew 12, acknowledges that a house divided will fall. John 17, Jesus prays for us, those who believe because of his disciples who spread that word. He prays for you and me to be one so that the world will know he sent us. Like this unity, it points back to this idea of how we were created to be from a God who is a cad to a people who are a cad. This idea that God is one and our goal should, to be, should be to be one in him. And in Jesus, this is an invitation for all of humanity into this acadness, into this oneness with God. It's an invitation into family and mission and hospitality and unity. So baby dedication is doing that, right? Like, like baby dedication is bringing more acadness into the world. It's a commitment from you to these families, from the families to you to become more one. Right? It's a small piece of the kingdom, a small way of making right what has been made wrong. It's justice. It's God fixing what is broken, making us and making this whole world one. So this gathering, right, this family, by committing back to the families um, that we're in this together, right, that's, that's the kingdom come. That's your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, just a preview of the healing of all things that God is doing. Jesus sets up this family. He says, the least must come first. So this family is set up in a way where we must tend to the least of these. I read a devotion that came into my email inbox this week that I thought um, pointed to this perfectly. And so it's written by a guy named Phil uh, Jackson, not the basketball coach, but the youth minister who's been doing urban ministry for 30 years, and he's now living in Chicago. He starts with this verse that we... uh, might sound familiar. Matthew 25, uh, the king will say, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these, you have done to me. And then he goes on, more than likely you have heard the African proverb that says it takes a village to raise a child, in which this is and has been true for both African culture and African-American culture as a way of life. The Maasai tribe from Kenya bring life to this proverb when, by, by the way that they greet one another. Every time a Maasai see another they greet each other with this statement, Kasarian Ngera, and I'm probably saying that really well, um, which means, how are the children? So before a conversation about anything else can take place, the Maasai teach us that if we ask about the least of these in our village, we have prioritized our focus. From here, the rest of the village will be great, as long as those who are unable to help themselves are fine. Everyone else will be good. However, here is another African proverb that has more stinging reality of our current situation. The child that is not embraced by the village will burn it down just to feel its warmth. That hit me really hard. He goes on, our villages are burning down. Violence is torching our communities, lack of jobs, unjust schools, unjust policing, poor help lack of prioritizing the least of these has caused villages to burn. He says, have we lost the urgency of what Christ was teaching in Matthew 25? That what we do to the least of these is what we have done to Jesus. You guys, I don't want want this village to burn. 
And that means we can't let one kid slip through the cracks without feeling the warmth of the embrace of this village. And that's what Jesus is doing, right? He is extend, extending the definition of family, extending the warmth of the embrace to include the least of these. The lost, the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the marginalized, when we extend the warmth of family to the stranger, that's hospitality. That's ekad. That's restoring all things. We have a father that runs out to the road to meet us when we're still far off. And he offers the warmth of his embrace when we don't deserve it. A father that blesses so that we can bless others. A father that says, all I have is yours so that we can say the same. And then he invites us to his table. Where Paul says that we're united by one bread, right? Which is Christ's body broken to make us one. And now we are the body of Christ, and so we must be one. We must unite around Christ. We must remove divisions. We must unite around the least of these and extend hospitality. Because we've got to offer the warmth of the embrace of the village, or the village is going to burn down. So we're all connected, and we're all going somewhere. There is hope. The life of these new babies remind us that we're all connected. The life of these new babies remind us that life is good and there is hope. So may we remember that we are family now because of Christ. And we can't let one slip through the cracks. So we're going to come to this table because we're all invited. Because God has made us one, he invites us to this one table where we, re- where we remember who he is and what he's done for us making a way, opening up family to include all of humanity, as long as we invite them in to what God is doing. Those who hear and do the word of God are family.